Welcome to Sunday School for Heathens. The show where we learn about Christianity and how weird it sounds to everyone else. I'm Shannon. And I'm Brian. I am not a priest. I don't have a degree in theology. I'm just a guy who considers religion his fandom and wants to share it with y'all. And I frankly don't know anything, but Brian's my good friend. If I wanted to learn about religion, he's the guy I'd want to know it from. And hopefully you do want to learn about religion because that's what you're stuck here for the next half an hour. <laughs> you know, it is what it is. We agreed to it. You press play. That's where we find ourselves. So Brian, what are we talking about this week? Well, I decided that because everything in the world has been a bummer lately, and last episode was kind of a bummer, let's just do one that's fun. So we're going to talk about some party boy Jesus. I love a good party boy <laughs> Jesus! Uh, the topic today is the wedding at Cana. Is that water into wine? It is! Hey! I know things! I don't actually know things, but I do put my hands up in full touchdown every time I get something right on this podcast. It's very exciting. So what do, what do you know about uh, the wedding at Cana? Uh, water into wine. I think that's maybe all of it. Is that also loaves and fishes? No, different different okay. miracle. Great. I There was a lot of feeding large groups of people. Yeah, food is important. It's great. Absolutely. We have snacks at every mass. <laughs> we had a whole conversation with our friends earlier this week about the appropriate and inappropriate use of snacks during mass. I have strong feelings about it. <laughs> you have strong feelings about a lot of things, Brian. Okay, so the wedding at Cana. Water into wine. Yeah, that's all I got. Correct. So, this is a story that shows up in the Gospel of John. It makes sense that it's only in John and not in the other Gospels because... Uh, the other three, Matthew, Mark, Luke, they're called the Synoptics. They're from similar sources, and John is kind of his own thing. Okay. So as far as the guys who tell their own stories in the Bible, there's three of them that are all pretty similar, and then there's sort of one out of left field? Kinda. Yeah, It's uh, John is a lot more uh, symbolic and grand scale, so you get a lot more of the, like, big deal miracles and, like, mysticism in it. John was written the latest. It was written about uh, 90 CE. Okay. Um, it's a hefty period of time later. Yeah, so about 60 years after Jesus died is when this was written. Okay. So one of the things that is important for John to show in his gospel is public miracles, kind of like the way the miracles happened in Egypt, that when God was working with Moses to get everybody out of Egypt. So this sort of ties Jesus into the land of or into the realm of other biblical heroes who have had one-on-one -on -one interactions with God and yeah. thus created miracles as a result. Correct. It's yeah. It's commandments, uh, sea parting, etc. Yeah, and the idea is just that the God of the Israelites is the same as this God of Jesus. Correct. It's kind of the the idea that we're going for. So it ties it all back together. Correct. So this wedding is Jesus's first public miracle. Uh, so it starts off everything and it's very exciting uh what the background here is uh jesus mary and all of jesus's disciples are invited to a wedding at cana in galilee how many disciples are there right now um, small medium large the it's pro i mean small because it's the beginning of his ministry there's it's the the 12 the 12 apostles are gathered at this point he's got them okay his core group but it's not like somebody just invited several hundred people to his wedding. No, there's a lot of questions about how many followers Jesus had. Some people think the numbers later in the Gospels are a little inflated, but I think it's fair to say he had a group of close friends that were with him at this wedding. Great. 
So in first century Palestine, weddings were a pretty big deal. Uh, the parties would go on for several days, and it was just like everybody drinking good, good old time. But there was a problem at this wedding, because short of when it was supposed to end, they ran out of wine. And nobody wants a party that runs out of liquor too early. Exactly. Some things never change. I like that. I like that Jesus understands a party foul when he sees one. Well, so it wasn't Jesus that noticed the problem. It was his mom, Mary. Great. And I Mary, like that she's still partying with the kids. Oh, yeah. Mary's, Mary's pretty cool. But <laughs> Joseph isn't? He might be there. We don't mention him. Okay. So I'm, I'm not sure. Great. I mean, he's not Jesus' biological father, so... True. But he might have been at this party, and Mary was just like, ah, Jesus, Jesus can handle this. We don't need to go to Joseph. So Mary goes up to Jesus and just tells him, the wine is gone. Doesn't, doesn't ask him, just says, the wine is gone. No context given. No <laughs> request. Just a fun fact. Yeah, just letting you know, Jesus... Uh, Jesus maybe was, she was. Maybe all this time she was just trying to slow Jesus's roll and tell him to stop drinking. Ooh, maybe. Hey, Jesus, you finished all of the wine. <laughs> Look at your life. Look at your choices. <laughs> I like that theory, but I don't know that it quite fits with our next bit here. Okay, what happens next? So Jesus responds to Mary, just mentioning the wine is gone. Uh, Woman, how does your concern affect me? My hour has not yet come. My Bible assures me that woman is, quote, a normal, polite form of address. <laughs> so calling his mom woman is not weird? No, it sounds way worse to us than it did at the time. Yes, clearly times have changed. <laughs> so it was a respectful term, but it's not what you would have called your mom. So it was, it's a little weird there, and he, it's kind of like he's separating himself from like being her son because it's kind of a transition into he's the messiah. Great. So this is less of a mother-son chat and more of a messiah disciple chat. Yeah, to to some extent, but also it's still definitely family. Like there it, it's still mom and son. Great. But it's not as rude as it sounds is the important thing. Okay. <laughs> Cuz so, I was concerned. Oh yeah, that <laughs> takes me aback. So after woman, what is the rest of that sentence he says? Woman, how does your concern affect me? Which is not, again, not as rude as it sounds. Some people think it's like mildly annoyed. Some people think it's just okay. <laughs> like what? He hasn't put the pieces together as to why this is a big deal yet. Yeah. He's got wine in his cup. Probably, yeah. Why does anyone else care that the wine is? Yeah. Um, so Mary ignores the question and gets one of the servers and tells the server, do whatever Jesus asks you. <laughs> okay. But Jesus hasn't asked anyone to do anything because he has yet to hit why is the wine gone. Mary is just like, Jesus is going to do this. You do what he says. Which I love. I love Mary in this story. <laughs> <laughs> just putting all the pieces in place, sitting back and letting it happen. She's great. <laughs> so Mary tells the server to do what Jesus says. And Jesus says to go to... There are six large stone jugs that are there for ceremonial Jewish washing, like foot, wa foot washing, hand washing, the, all the ritual cleanliness things. Great. And so these are big jugs, 20 to 30 gallons each. Oof. That is a lot of jug. Yeah. 
So Jesus tells the waiter, fill all of these jugs with water. Okay. And the waiters, probably because I would listen to Mary, uh, were like, okay, we'll do this weird thing. <laughs> but somewhere in that unwritten, Jesus realizes that there's actually no wine, understands why this concern affects him, and decides to do something about it. Yeah, he. who knows? He might have understood this whole time and was him and Mary were like bantering. I don't know. But why do you put the banter in and not the decision to be helpful? Or useful, or any of that. Because it's John and Jesus is mysterious. Okay. <laughs> that's Clearly, a, I have feelings about John. That's a highlight of John. John is also the one who wrote Revelation, if that tells you anything. The, like, crazy apocalyptic... That's the trippy one. Yeah, yeah. So this is the same John. Okay. At some point, we, I think we need to do an episode on just how the Bible is structured. Oh, boy. Because there's books... And then there's chapters and there's a lot of authorship. I think we got to do just how the Bible works as book. Let's add it to the list. That could be like a whole college course. <laughs> we'll see what I can, how much I can you, narrow that down. <laughs> I'm going to make you this fill it into 30 minutes for me. Yikes. Maybe so, we could do it in two parts. <laughs> all right. Uh, maybe. We'll try. So back to these jugs of water. The very confused waiter filled each jug to the brim. And then Jesus said... Take some water out of one of the jugs and serve it to the head waiter. And this other waiter was like, okay, I guess. And so he fills up this cup and takes it over the head waiter. And the head waiter tries it and he immediately calls the groom over. And he says, normally people serve the good wine first, then the cheap stuff after everyone is drunk. Why are you serving the best stuff now? <laughs> I love that. So not only did Jesus make multiple cases of 20 to 30 gallons of wine each appear, but it's better than the stuff they were drinking before. Oh yeah, this is like the best wine. <laughs> Clearly, divinely created wine is the best wine. Mm -hmm. That's what we've learned today. So the, the, the story kind of ends with, this is the first sign that, quote, revealed his glory and his disciples who were with him started to believe in him. Okay, so this is where he goes from fringe lunatic wandering around the deserts of the Levant to, okay, maybe this guy's onto something? I mean, so I'm sure some people yeah. thought he was a fringe lunatic, but before this, he was baptized by John the Baptist, and John was a crazy guy out in the wilderness eating locusts and honey and wearing a uncomfortable shirt. But that doesn't prove to me that nobody thought that Jesus wasn't a weirdo wandering around. Well, yeah, his only endorsement up to this point was John. The Baptist. So, so, like, they might have thought he was crazy because John, but also John had lots of followers. So, right. mixed bag. So, John the Baptist is also the John who wrote the story, or are no, those no, no, different John's? Different Johns. Okay. There, there's a lot of. Uh, That's what a lot we call of one of the best. names. Yeah. But John the Baptist is like, he has a lot of things that happen to him after he's wandering around. In oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Cut to the end of the story, his head gets served on a platter. Great. Is he the one who gets crucified upside down? No. That's. Peter, maybe. Okay. That's someone else. Great. Um, the only things I know about Catholicism I know from you and Dan Brown books, so ooh. that's where we're at. I, so I was at a class uh, about how the Bible was put together, ooh. and the guy leading it was yelling about Dan Brown for like half of it, because he was, uh, he was not happy with all of the inaccuracies in that the Da Vinci Code. Is it the Da Vinci Code the one he has a problem with, or is it the Angels and Demons the one he has a problem with? Because that one feels more overtly Catholic than the Da Vinci Code. Um, I think all of them. Yeah, I mean, I have read 
three Dan Brown books that I can think of. The Da Vinci Code, which I've only read once, and that's the one with the dark matter in it. Maybe. That one, to me, just feels like science that takes place also with the Vatican. Uh-huh. Whereas Angels and Demons feels like all of the weird Catholic shit. Yeah, I, it's been a long time since I've read them. I just, I know there are a lot of incorrect things. And even Dan Brown has said, I wrote some fiction. Everyone, cool it. <laughs> yeah, the books are fiction. Yeah. They just happen to take place in a world that is sort of real. Yes. Emphasis on sort of. Okay, so this is where people start to figure out that Jesus is actually legit. Yeah, I, it's he is starting to gather followers at this point. And does word get around about this water into wine thing and more people come to sort of find him and check him out? I think so. I think that's uh, probably part of what happens. I think, I think word would get around because let's get into some fun notes on this story. All right. It was the equivalent of 730 bottles of wine. That's so much wine. <laughs> so a lot of wine. So much wine. But actually, based on certain translations, it might not have been wine. It might have been beer. I mean, not like no less impressive, but interesting. Maybe yeah. beer. Maybe beer. Interesting. Does it, does it say anywhere what they did with the leftovers after the wedding? Or did this wedding that was already drunk enough to have drank all of their wine consume the next 700 plus gallons of wine? 700 bottles, not gallons. That, but still. Still, yes. Um, There's gotta be leftovers. Once once again, we're, this is a recurring theme. The Bible does not go into that level of detail. <laughs> <laughs> That's why we have so many people with so many opinions about the not present details that come further down the line. I need to find some grad student who was writing their thesis on what happened to the leftovers from the wedding at Cana. So I have some fun things that people have tried to figure out about this wedding, not what happened to the rest of the wine, but weirdly the most interesting part of researching this was, where was Cana? We don't really know. Interesting. I hadn't even thought about that. I totally took for granted we don't know where Cana is. So there's five towns that are, maybe it's one of these. Okay. But there's two that I focused on because it seemed like there was the most research about all of these. The traditional one that pilgrims will go to nowadays when they visit the Holy Land is Keferkenna. Okay. Where is that now? Keferkenna is in, it's in Palestine. It's, okay. um, it's off of the road to Tiberias near Nazareth. That's kind of all I know directions-wise of it. This site is based on the supposed testimony of St. Jerome and other pilgrims from the 4th century. Maybe we think people were going there back that long ago. We know people started worshipping here in 1641 when the Franciscans built a church. And they built the church saying, we think this is where Cana is? Basically. And because there might have been some pilgrims just a couple hundred years after Jesus who were going there and nobody said why they were going there and it sort of might make sense that that was the Well, no, the, the people that we have the, the testimony from, we know that they were going there because they believed it was the place where Cana was. Okay. But the other town that it might be is five miles away from this one. Okay, so we've got a tight region. Yeah, so we're, we're close. We're squaring it. So in this town, uh, Keferkenna, there's a Greek Orthodox church that has two large stone jugs, 
that claim to be from the wedding. Great. But there's this archaeologist, Rivka Gonin. She says that they're probably just old baptismal fonts. Have they been carbon dated or anything? I don't, I don't know that. I just think it's funny that, like, maybe they're not water jugs. Maybe they're baptismal oh. fonts. Those are different shapes. So I'm going to say, <laughs> I feel like a baptismal font is a bird bath and a water jug is a jug. Yeah, so generally, yeah. That's what I think. Um, one of those is a bowl and one of those is a cup. Yeah. So the other funny thing that I've learned about this first town is you can buy a uh, cane of wine from street vendors in this town. Of course. It's, it's the touristy one. All right. What's the second one? The second town is uh, Kirbitkana. Okay. It, they both have Kana in them yeah. now. Yeah. So that's fun. fun fact about that. Uh, Kirbitkana is... It probably is the name is derived from place the old Hebrew place of reeds. The the Cana part is okay. And so there are there's a marshy reed filled area near uh, Kirbit Kenna. One historian is certain that this is the right one because Kefir Kenna doesn't have any reeds. And how could it be right if it doesn't have any reeds? Wow. <laughs> They're very sure. If there's not any reeds, <laughs> couldn't be the place with the reeds. But the second one is m- more recently thought to be the old, the original Cana. It was it started being excavated in 1998 okay. by Doug Edwards, and his work continues like through this year by right. uh, Tom McCulloch. And they discovered this underground tunnel system where there's some Greek graffiti on the walls that say things like Lord Jesus. And it's pr- they believe that people have been worshipping here from about the 5th century to the 13th century. Interesting. There's also a room with one stone jug and room for five more. Ooh. I mean, I guess if the jugs are 20 to 30 gallons, you do have to have a lot of room to hold on to five of them. Correct. That makes sense. So, yeah, like I said, these are only five miles apart, so that historical testimony... I kind of think it could be about either those old pilgrims, because they both had jugs. They're similar. Correct. But Kevrakenna is closer to the road to Tiberias, so it might have been more of just a convenient place for pilgrims to get to, and that might have been why it caught on. True. So, who knows? It's a mystery. I think, in my opinion, it's probably Kevrakenna. All right. So, other fun, interesting thing. We don't know whose wedding it was. They just call him the groom, don't they? Yeah. We Mary was important, clearly, because they brought up the fact that there wasn't wine to her. Yes. So, possibly someone in Jesus' family getting married. Possibly a brother of Jesus. There's some people who believe that he had a brother named James. There are some people who don't. I think he probably had a brother named James. Um, Are the people who think he didn't have a brother the people who think that Mary didn't have sex after he gave birth to Jesus? Those are the people. <laughs> I got it. I'm putting, I'm putting together the pieces here, slowly but sure. <laughs> so people think possibly James getting married to possibly one of his disciples, uh, uh, Nathaniel, like a family member of Nathaniel, um, like a sister or cousin or something. And okay. Because Nathaniel is from uh, Cana. Okay. So it would make sense why they were in Cana. And Nathaniel is one of the disciples. Yeah, Nathaniel is one of the 12 apostles. Okay. um, Written in some lists as Bartholomew, which I know that's not the same name. I'm making a face. It's his dad's name, so it's Bar-Ptolemy. Okay. Um, So, son of Ptolemy. So so if I'm ever looking at a list of disciples, Bartholomew 
Nathaniel. And Nathaniel are the same. Yes, same guy. Great. Do they all have two names? Mm, a fair amount. Yeah, okay. there's like Simon Peter. Simon is Peter. Oh, it's. Me. <laughs> it gets confusing. I'm so confused already. This is worse than Russian literature. <laughs> and they all have three names. So some people, more interestingly, think it was Jesus's wedding. Ooh. Some people think it was Jesus's wedding to Mary Magdalene, um, who was a, a known follower of his. Yes. Uh, one of those people is uh, John Spong. He's a an Episcop- Episcopalian bishop, but he's pretty out there. Like, he doesn't believe that Jesus physically rose from the dead. So a lot of people take what he has to say with a grain of salt. But he's also an Episcopalian bishop? Yeah, uh, Episcopalians, they can get away with a lot more than Catholics. Okay. Um, which is sometimes great. It I, does create a more interesting conversation. So another one is in 1845, Mormon elder Orson Hyde said that it was Jesus's wedding to Mary Magdalene, but also Mary and Martha of Bethany, who are sisters. Okay. We're putting all of the Mormon salt on that one. So this was at a time when polygamy was common in uh, the Church of Latter-day Saints. It's not anymore, just so everyone knows. Yes, yes, yes. Mormons only have one spouse at a time. Um, but at this time, this dude had eight wives and 32 children. So, like, sure, I get it why you maybe think Jesus had multiple wives. Okay. Um, and the last one is Thomas Aquinas, uh, a theologian from the 13th century, we've mm-hmm. talked about him, thinks that it was John's wedding, which, like, John the author. That makes uh, sense, too. Yeah, because you'd think John would be pretty grateful and would want to write about this awesome thing Jesus did at his wedding. Sure. But John's also into the spookiness of the Jesus and could also just have been writing about it because it was remarkable and spooky. Yeah, could have been. Um, I like to think of mysticism as just spookiness. I'll take it. It's sometimes true. (laughs) (laughs) That's all that matters. So theologically, what do we get from this story? Um, It was the beginning of Jesus's ministry. So that's a big deal. Uh, We also get that God is pretty chill and likes to party. Uh, This is often used as an argument that God approves of marriage and approves of earthly celebrations. And it's used against people who want to put a ban on alcohol. Great. Yes. We should be allowed to drink and wed and be happy because Jesus drank and attended weddings and was happy and made the weddings more drunk and more happy. Yeah. And we need this story because we need it in opposition to our good friend Paul. Oh, Paul. Who said in uh, his first letter to the Corinthians that everyone should remain unmarried like him. Uh, But if you can't control your lust, fine, get married. Paul is so sassy. (laughs) Oh, yes. (laughs) And very strongly opinionated. And, okay, back up. You know what Paul reminds me of? Paul reminds me of those Ina Garden memes that are like, if you can't get fresh-picked basil under the moonlight, store-bought is fine. Oh, man. Um, If anyone listening would like to make a meme of Paul as Ina Garden or something like that, I would love that because I love both of those people. (laughs) Am I right, though? Am I wrong with something? (laughs) Yes, I, I like that. I've declared it. Paul has a lot of strong opinions, and Paul thinks Paul is great. (laughs) But also says, okay, 
You can do that, I suppose. Fine, I guess. There's a lot of... If you're burning with lust. There's a lot of <laughs> passive aggressiveness happening. Uh, so, uh, theologically, another thing is I, I mentioned before that uh, the way Jesus spoke to Mary was kind of unusual in a way a son would talk to his mother. And so Augustine is the one who has said that maybe this was his first assertion that he was divine because he was uh, starting to separate himself from his family ties. So you think maybe this was Jesus starting to feel more divine and less human and thus starts yeah. acting less like people are his, like, on the same level as him because he's getting more... More, yeah, more Jesus-y, I guess? It definitely could be. Um, there's other people who think that uh, the turning the water into wine was uh, a parallel of Moses turning the Nile River into blood um, because Moses was the savior of the Jewish people of old and Jesus was meant to be the new savior. That makes sense. You take a clear liquid and turn it into a red liquid. Yeah. I'm assuming the wine was red. I, I think so. Unless it was beer. We don't know. Unless it was beer. Um, but you are definitely turning water into other liquids. Yes. Yes, Blood, definitely that. Beer, wine, what have you. Um, there's some people who think that this was to usher in a new era where the laws were no longer necessary because we changed the water in the ritual washing jugs into wine. Oh, because there is not really ritual washing in all of the same ways now as there was presumably then because they had these jugs? Correct, yeah. There. So yeah, at the, at the time, and I think still in uh, some sects of Judaism, there is a lot of ritual uh, laws that people still follow. And Jesus it sometimes says that he doesn't want to do away with the law, but sometimes doesn't follow the law. It's complicated. And he did use five very large ceremonial washing jugs and turned them into giant pitchers of wine, so that shows how much reverence he had for this for that one washing. Thing. Yeah. If any listeners have insights on contemporary use of ritual washing jugs in the Jewish faith, I would love to hear about it, just because I'm curious. Write us in at sundayschoolforheathens at gmail.com. What else you got for me, Brian? Right, one more thing that I just think is fascinating is there's this theory that there were six jars specifically because seven is a perfect number in the Jewish tradition. It's like it represents like wholeness okay so, so why do we not want it to be whole so they're one short and then jesus shows up and so he himself is the completeness of it and he is maybe the seventh jug and maybe wine is like his blood because and it's a foreshadowing of this is people shoe shoehorning in we drink the wine as the blood, right? Yeah, and other people just think there were six jars because historically at this wedding, there were six jars and someone wrote it down. <laughs> I like that lot better. But I'm glad that you brought that up because I did sort of ping on the idea of wine has a very important place in these faiths. And do we like wine because Jesus liked wine? Do we like wine because it's a convenient analog to blood, which in the world where people believe that is the thing. Do we like wine for other reasons? So I'm glad that you brought that up because I, I did sort of think about the connection between this very big wine-based event of Jesus's and all the things that we associate with wine and Jesus together in contemporary times. Yeah, and I think I'll just I'll end Wedding at Cana on this note 
there's wine and other kinds of alcohol in a lot of religious traditions. And honestly, part of it is just being drunk makes you more open to mystical experiences. So it just is, alcohol is always going to be part of any religious tradition, especially before humans understand exactly why it did what it did. They just knew that it made you feel different and religion made you feel different and one made you more open to the other? Yeah, kind of. That's interesting. So that's that's what I've got for the wedding at Cana. I like it. Yeah, it's fun. It's just a, a good, like, happy story. Yeah, and you know what? <laughs> We didn't mention the patriarchy at all this week. Yeah, because specifically, woman is not condescending as a, as a term of address. Only because woman is not a condescending <laughs> term of address. But we have a woman in a position of power, and she doesn't get sassed for her power, and people listen to her when she tells them to do things. Yeah. Good. So even if her son called her woman, Mary's doing real well for herself oh, yeah. in this story. Mary, Mary comes out looking great in this story. I appreciate it. M- Mary, taking care of all of us when we run out of booze. Oh, yeah. So, you know what time it is now. What time is it, Brian? It is time for the patronage pop quiz. Oh, boy. This is where I tell Shannon about a saint, and she has to guess what they're the patron of. Okay, I am not very good at this. I am over two so far. I think, I think you'll get this one. Okay, um, I'm intrigued. So I promised last time that uh, St. Francis de Sales would come back. Oh, yeah. We were talking about St. Francis de Sales and the papal ninja last week at the beginning of our podcast. So is that the saint we're talking about? Yeah. In honor of the papal ninja, we're going to talk about Francis de Sales. All right. I want to hear a story. He was born in a castle called Chateau de Threns uh, in 1567. He was the oldest child of 12 in a wealthy and powerful family. And his parents wanted him to become a lawyer and enter politics to carry on that like family line of power. Uh, in his teens, he believed in predestination, uh, which is the thought that you're, you're set from the beginning, whether you're going to go to heaven or go to hell, it doesn't really matter what you do. Okay. And this freaked him out. He thought he was doomed to hell. It freaked him out so much that he got sick and was confined to bed. Eventually, he snapped out of this and figured that whatever God had in store for him was the best, and so he devoted his life to God. Interesting. So he figured it out. It's fine. He, he got, it just took him a while to come around to it. So he went to school and got degrees in law and theology from the University of Padua, and he became a Senate advocate. And then it, he had this big, powerful position, and he heard God say to him, leave all and follow me. And he took that to mean he should become a priest. And his family was real mad about it, especially because he had an arranged marriage and he bolted. Ooh. Okay. I mean, if God tells you to become a priest, you got to go with it, I guess. So, yeah, he just did it. He became a priest. He was sent to Geneva, Switzerland. And there he was famously gentle and good at explaining theology in a simple way so that he was able to convert many people from uh, Calvinism to Catholicism, because Geneva was a very Calvinist area. Yeah, that's where all the Calvins were. Uh, Another cool thing about him is he learned sign language so he could bring his message to deaf people. Oh, I like that. Yeah. And he loved working with children, which are where there's a lot of schools named after him. Smart. And he turned down a powerful bishop position to keep working directly with people because that's where God sent him. That's what he wanted to do. 
And he was great as a pastoral leader. He wrote a lot of letters that we still have today and are considered very valuable for his contributions to theology. So he was declared a doctor of the church, which is a big honorary title by Pope Pius IX. And there are several religious orders named in his honor. Yeah, there's nuns and other things, right? Yeah. Um, there's yeah, there's a couple different ones. Oh boy. Um, so that's Saint Francis de Sales. Again, just a, like a, a nice seaman guy. What? Is, <laughs> he sounds like such a good guy. But now I have to guess what he's the patron saint of. Yeah. Um, is he the patron saint of lawyers? That is. Because he was a lawyer for so long. Not on the list. Okay. Or is my other guess, and I know I'm not allowed to guess this, but I'm going for it here. Is he the patron saint of the deaf? Yes. That was the That's guess. the one that I thought you might get. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I wasn't sure if because he was a lawyer. No, that's interesting, though. I would, I'm, I'm now surprised that he is not. So he is the patron saint against deafness, uh, the patron saint of authors, the Catholic press, confessors of deaf people, so against deafness and of deaf people. Okay, so both sides of that coin. Yeah. Uh, patron of educators, journalists, teachers, and writers, and also some places, one of which is the Diocese of Columbus, Ohio. Oh. Which is extra fun because that's where my parents live. Brian really loves Ohio. I do. Ohio's great. Please don't write to tell me how much you don't like Ohio. I yeah. love it. We'll we change. don't want to hear anything about your feelings on Ohio, really. <laughs> That's all. Great. Well, speaking of which, if there are things not about Ohio that you want to reach out to us about, you can tweet at us at Sunday School for Heathens. You can also email us, like I said, at Sunday School for Heathens at gmail.com. All one word, no caps on that one. Our theme song is by Adam Griffin. You can check him out at alteringgravity.wordpress.com. Our logo is by David Griffin, a.k.a. American Dave. Special thanks to Aaron Quick and Jim Allritz for the gear. And I think that's all for today, so amen? Amen. You may now go in peace to like and share the pod. Mm